Hi, I'm Simone W. Johnson-Smith, and welcome to the Immigrant Experience in America. Are you a professional new to the United States and struggling to monetize the expertise you brought across the seas? Are you feeling misunderstood and out of touch because you're struggling to understand the unstated rules of the American culture? Each week, we'll take an in-depth look at the positive contributions immigrants are making to the American culture, marketplace, and life. Our intention is to serve as a bridge from your culture to the American culture, giving you a roadmap of tools and the language to understand the unstated rules of the American culture. Let's get started. Thanks for tuning in to another episode of the Immigrant Experience in America, where we amplify and humanize the experiences of immigrants in the United States. Today we have for you Purvi Bhatt. Welcome, Purvi. Hi, Simone. Welcome to everyone who's listening today. Yes, it's great to have you here on our show. Thank you. Thanks for the opportunity. Wonderful. Uh, If you don't mind sharing a bit about your heritage and from where your family originate. Sure. Well, I, um, I come from a rich tradition from Western India. Um, Gujarat is the state that I come from, that my parents came from. So I'm a second generation immigrant. My parents came in the early 60s, uh, pre-civil rights. Uh, the, my parents came uh, first, my father. He came in uh, 1963. And the way that he came, he came, he came from a, a small village in uh, Western India, multiple degree mechanical engineer, but knew that the best way he could support his family was to immigrate and try and uh, raise more money from here and send it back. And so in order to do that, uh, he needed to, to get here as efficiently as possible. And at that time, a lot of people from India who were in similar, similar means, with similar means, were, were coming by boat. So my father came to the United States in steerage in an Australian uh, cruise liner. That, wow. Yes. Um, and he left uh, India and three weeks later, finally made it to the United States. And so he would jokingly say when we, when many, many years later, would go to see Titanic. Uh, and I was watching it with him and he would jokingly say, see how those people came? That's how I came. And I would just poo-poo that away. <laughs> like, it's not possible to, and then I did some history and really paid attention to his stories finally and realized that is how they came. Um, and it's, you know, it's an incredible story. He came without really knowing anyone in the States. Um, legend has it that he wore a suit every day because he was coming here. And, uh, and again, with the level of courage and, uh, and kind of adventuresome spirit that so many of us who are immigrants or come from immigrant families have. My mom came two years later when he was able to afford bringing her here. So they met in an arranged marriage. Um, a few weeks later, they got married. And then two months later, he left on that boat to come here. And then two years later, she came. And my mom recently passed away. Both of my parents are now gone. And as I was looking through her photos, I've often shared the photo of my father with my mom, you know, in front of the, the, the cruise liner before he was leaving. And it's an iconic photo for many Indians from that time, because again, if you were of a certain economic standing, that was the only way to get here. So there, there are a lot of photos of that. Uh, and so I've used it often, right, to tell my origin story. Uh, but it was only in my mother's passing and going over her photos after she she passed, as many of us do, to, to um, you know, frame the, the legacy of the person who left. 
I found a photo and paid attention for the first time of her surrounded by the women of our family, you know, from her in-laws side to her own side, from the children that were there. And I thought it was her photo when she was leaving to go to my dad's uh, family right after they got married. And that's usually a ceremony, you know, that's um, a bit somber and a ceremony that happens from, from the girl's side as she leaves. But I took a closer look and I saw the backdrop was actually of an airport. And after so many years of using my father's iconic photo and story, we completely brushed over the fact that this is my mom's origin story as she left the country. She was also the first person to immigrate in her family, uh, much as my dad was the first person to immigrate to the United States in his. But we never told her story. And so she flew uh, two years later and uh, with all sorts of stories uh, as a woman doing that alone, first time in her, in her family. Um, English was not a strong language for her at all, and yet she did this alone, uh, which is remarkable to me when I think about that. Uh, not only did she do it alone, on faith, she's going to meet this man she has not seen in two years after only knowing him for a couple of months. And so, you know, the level of courage and adventures and spirit that exists for, for people who come, especially when they don't have family on this side, which... Uh, you know, I know happens in every generation, but less so, I think, for especially for, for the immigrant uh, community and the Indian immigrant community, because there are so many of us here now. Um, and then I came a year after she got here. Uh, and then that's, that began my story of, uh, of learning how to keep our traditions alive while also integrating as, as quickly as I could um, as I watched my father and my mother do the same. Wow. Wow, Poovy. That's the first time I've heard of someone who came over by sea. I've, I've, <laughs> I've spoken to many people who it was flight, but my goodness, it's, it's amazing to hear that. And I'm sure all of us are going to be wondering, I want to see that photo. Please oh, share it. I will <laughs> share it. I will share it. I will. On, on LinkedIn or wherever you can. I would love to see it. Oh my goodness. That's quite a history. And as so many immigrants who are the first to leave their family and to venture out in such a way across the seas, no support system. And you're the one to come and lay the foundation. And then for your mom to only have met him through arranged marriage, then were with him for a short period, then he left and they were separated for two years. And then to be reunited, my goodness, can you imagine the emotions? Um, I can't even imagine the courage, right? How often we, I can't picture any of us doing something like that, right? I know I couldn't. So the emotions, including fear, including Yes, yes. But, you know, I heard my very first interviewee, she said the fact that you were able to leave your own place of dwelling and what you know and venture out into a whole new different land it makes you fearless I mean yes she mm -hmm. might have been fearful stepping out but the fact that she was able to keep moving and she did it and continued and here you are and my goodness I mean yes that that makes her she conquered that fear amazingly for sure I wonder and I'm sure just with all of the people you've spoken with I bet some of the spirit that they have has always been there to overcome those kinds of fears, right? I, I don't know that I have it, but as just as I told my dad's story, my mom's story now, and, and as you're reflecting on, on who you've interviewed over the years, I think that you must, some of that must be hardwired to be able to take those kinds of leaps. Um, it's just remarkable whenever I hear uh, other people tell their story as well. 
because um, you just, uh, it takes a, a really deep sense of, of courage and faith, I think, to be able to do what, what these folks have done in crossing the seas by air or by boat. Yeah, amazing, amazing story. Thanks for sharing that. So I wonder what is life like in Western India? I think I've had my exposure having colleagues, friends from the from India and what I've seen through Bollywood or enjoying <laughs> the food and so forth. But what is life like on, on that side of the country? What are things that you do for fun? If you've been able to go back, mm-hmm. or what has your parents passed on to you? Like what's the food? How is it different from the rest <laughs> of India culturally and, and so music wise and so forth? Sure. Well, and again, I'm, I'm telling you the stories through the lens of a kid who was going back and forth, right? And, um, and, and through learning about it with, through my family and, uh, and even academically a bit, you know, life on, uh, in Gujarat in particular, you know, just to set the stage a bit, Gandhi is Gujarati, right? He came from Gujarat. Um, it's, uh, oh, ad- <laughs> that's a nice connection. Yeah. It okay, is. Thanks. Sure. And, you know, of course, he immigrated to South Africa and the story begins, right, uh, in where, how we know about him. But, uh, yes, he's Gujarati and, uh, and a good part of that state, you know, is agricultural. Um, textiles are also really important. And it's one of the states that is economically very vibrant. Uh, you know, the current prime minister comes from that state as well. And it's doing, it's doing quite well. And they say it's partly because of the discipline of the way business is run. Um, and there's a lot of people who come from business who end up immigrating. So when you go around the world and if you have exposure to Indians in uh, Eastern or Southern Africa, um, through to the UK, over to the United States, there's a good share of folks that are coming from Gujarat. And uh, oftentimes they're viewed as, as people who do have ingenuity and are able to think creatively and start businesses. And so that's one aspect of what it's like there, how it is to live there. I can only reflect on it as a, as a daughter who would go back um, kicking and screaming uh, when I was younger because I didn't want to leave being here with my friends. And we would go every summer or every, you know, every handful of summers because my parents wanted to make sure that they were still close, of course, to, to the family and that I had a sense of what it's like um, to be in an Indian family and to, and to know that that family would be there for me. And the only way to get that was by having the shared experience of being together. My mom came from an urban area in Ahmedabad, which is, uh, which is a large city in, in Gujarat. And she, you know, we lived in a, in, in a peri-urban area, my grandfather's home. And it's, a, it's an extended family situation where children, their parents, the grandchildren, siblings often live under the same roof. Um, some of that is changing absolutely now as, uh, as so much of the world has changed based on globalization and the rest. But at the time when I was throwing, you know, it was wonderful. I would go and because I'm an only child, it was my ability to have access to cousins and other people my age because they were all under one roof with me. Um, my uncles and aunts uh, took care of me and I learned a lot about uh, what it was like for what school and the rest was like because of what they were doing. They would leave to go you know, to high school And I'd see that they'd have to wear uniforms to do that. They'd have a a different structure to schooling than what I was used to. Um, Exam periods were at a different time. Exams were intense in that if you didn't pass them, you wouldn't advance to the next uh, grade where we didn't face it to the same same extent or I didn't feel that we did. 
Um, I watched my aunt go through preparing for her own arranged marriage and I, and as a kid, and I saw what that looked like, how the family would come together and how she had to step into um, almost blind faith and being able to move into her future. And I learned a whole lot more about the kinds of things that my parents went through because I was watching what was happening with my uncles and aunts. Um, my parents were older and so their, their siblings were younger and they were going through adolescent adolescence in their early 20s while I was young and so I could see what that what that was like what I also experienced was freedom and I grew up um, here in the United States at a time when you would still be able to ride your bike and come home you know when the street lights came on but in India when I would go over the summers you know you were free to just go to go to a neighbor's house to go three blocks over and you would hear your your grandmother your elder kind of scream off the balcony to bring you home. And it was a communal experience where it was, you felt that you were responsible to the neighborhood and that people were looking out for you so much so that even though they don't know you because you didn't grow up there, but it would come for you know, a month or two every, every few years, they still took responsibility for you. And that, um, you know, I actually felt that deeply. Um, I went there during times when Coca-Cola wasn't available yet, right? A lot of globalization and products were not there. And as a kid, I didn't love it, <laughs> but I learned to really enjoy the food. So you were asking about the food, you know, Gujaratis tend to not eat meat. So there was primarily vegetarian, um, clean food that you would buy, again, being an agricultural state, and you would buy fresh roots and vegetables and eat whatever was in season, your grandmother, your elder, um, would cook for you and you would learn at her at her feet. Um, we did not have a standing kitchen, so learning how to cook meant uh, sitting on the floor uh, with a gas uh, burner um, hot plate, basically. I don't know how else to explain it. And we would learn how to cook uh, on that. I would watch how that was happening. Uh, leftovers, we did not have a refrigerator in our home. Uh, the neighborhood would have one person who would. So you, you, the way you would handle leftovers would be to feed it to the cows or to the dogs in the evening, or to leave it for the for those who might be um, you know who might be more underserved than you are. And that taught me a lot about uh, you know how resources are shared. Um, and I, you know, only in telling this story now am I seeing a lot of those those dots get connected. My dad lived in a village, and so when we would go to visit. My family on his side, it was even harder in the adjustment, um, but it was, again, agricultural. He lived, uh, my grandparents on that side and the family there lived on a family compound, and it was a quieter time. Uh, fewer resources that I was used to, you know, electricity was there, but you wouldn't uh, have all the lights on. It would just be one compound house we'd all gather, um, and it was a simpler time. Uh, people would sing. You know, there would be no TV. Uh, I didn't, we didn't have television in, for most of my time visits when I went go to India in that time. Um, radio was the big, the big thing that we would use for entertainment or people would be singing or back to Bollywood. We would wait in line and try to snag a ticket and go and see whatever, whatever Bollywood film everybody was talking about. For my parents, English was a second language, but for me, Gujarati was a second language. And so it was challenging for me when I would go. Um, it was challenging for my family, too. And we would figure out how to teach each other the right words. And I learned a lot and learned to adapt in both directions very quickly. Um, you know, I miss those days and that time. Uh, I professionally have had the opportunity to go back to India several times and always made time to go back to the house that I feel that I grew up in because we would spend summers 
my mother's uh, home in Ahmedabad. Uh, and, but it doesn't feel the same today as it did then. Uh, it is busy. People are living lifestyles that are just uh, very much more like ours here. And so that sense of the neighborhood doesn't, doesn't come through as strongly as it did when I was growing up. Um, I'll end in just saying that uh, both my parents at that time, you know, it was very strict. And it wasn't easy, especially for my mom, who was a caregiver as well. My grandmother was a caregiver. My mother was a caregiver. I was a caregiver. And when you've got responsibility for multiple generations, and my mom was the eldest daughter, um, she was busy taking care of a lot of people. And so schooling, you know, of course she finished school, she did well, but uh, it always took second, it took second place to so much else. Uh, and I did not experience it that way. Um, she made sure that I didn't uh, face the same, the same fate, but uh, I could see how hard it was for them. And a lot has changed since then in terms of the way bowls are playing out in the household. But I, I witnessed something different at that time. And that would be, you know, as I talk about that time, it's the early 70s, throughout the 70s and early 80s. So my mom was one yeah. of 12. Yes. Uh, how many siblings did your mom yes. have? My mom's siblings, she had, uh, there were four of them total. Okay. Uh, he was the oldest and there's one brother. So there were three girls and one brother. Okay. Right. No, I can relate to... My mom also uh, carrying a lot of the responsibility for her siblings. Unfortunately for them, their father died very early in his 40s. Oh and so mom being the oldest had to take on some of that responsibility and kind of put her personal life on hold and, you know, um, mm-hmm. go to, you know, support uh, my grandmother in now raising mm-hmm. the children because grandfather died when my grandmother was pregnant with the last child, right? Mm-hmm. She was pregnant mm-hmm. while he passed away in a, in a very tragic uh, accident, um, car accident. But so I, I relate completely with you, you know, your mom's pressure that she had to carry as the oldest child. You know, it's, it's quite heavy. Wow, quite an example learning from those ladies juggling personal life and family responsibilities, right? Absolutely. And you know, now as I reflect on her and, and my father, who was smack in the middle of his family, um, but felt the sense of responsibility, knowing that, again, if you're coming from a, an agricultural village setting, there's so many ups and downs in terms of your survival. And so he, you know, he had to leave home uh, for his education. And he left for high school. The village didn't have a high school. So in order for him to move on for his own education, he moved into the city and then for college and then and then I don't even recall because he had he had early onset dementia when I was 28 and he was 58. So so many of the stories that um, I rolled my eyes at as a teenager. I wish I had paid attention differently and um, and learned the details of. But somehow he got wind of the opportunity to come to the United States and he, he took out you know loans and figured out how to get here. Um, but mainly because he wanted to make sure his family at home were well taken care of. And I from the the exposure I've had, I've had to similar stories so many people that's why they come is to make sure that they're able to help back at home but that sense of responsibility right for, for both of them as I think about it now I can't imagine I can't imagine and you know similar uh, to your story you know my mother it was a bit different it was my grandmother that was very very sick she had uh, tuberculosis and had a very difficult time um, throughout throughout her, her youth in being able to stay strong. And she still was able to have four children. Um, but my mom had to really help take care of her 
and take care of the rest. Uh, at times, you know, my mom was taken care of by, by her grandmother as well because of some of the hardship that, that uh, my grandmother was going through. And, uh, you know, they learned through multi-generational value sets, right? And, and I think with that came a lot of discipline. And I know it helped her weather so much hardship here when we came, when she came here or hardship that I would face, I would, you know, I'd uh, come to them and they, both my parents would have a lot to offer in being able to keep everything in perspective. Right. Wow. Sometimes you, you, I, I wish sometimes that I could have, I could have a recording of my mom. <laughs> <laughs> You know, from yes. when she was younger and know that she's gone just to be able to watch and to see her decisions and how she was and the joy and the sadness and just to see all of it. I, I wish I had it recorded. But, you know, such is life. That's such, is that's, life. <laughs> that's well, such is life. Both of us as daughters of amazing mothers, right, especially this weekend and thinking about that. I wish the same for both my parents, but especially my mom. And they ached to tell the details of their story. But, you know, with every, I can say for myself, you know, with whatever phase of life I was in, I wouldn't have the patience to listen to all the details. Or I thought that the reason they were trying to tell me was to just say, well, see, it was so much worse for us. And I wasn't willing to listen to that. Right. And so now, you know, I feel the same way. I'm like, wow, I wish I had um, recorded more of that uh, and uh, written it down because it is something that it's their story, it's their legacy, and we're the ones that are here to keep them, keep it alive, and you can't do that without the details. Right. I find that I've had so much more of a broader perspective, and growing up, you don't quite understand as you mature, you gain better perspective, but there is another perspective that comes once your parents pass. Mm. that you don't expect but once that chapter is closed it almost of a sudden you can see the picture so much clearer and listening to her siblings mm. say things that they would never have thought to say until we were in that moment and all of a sudden I'm hearing things that I never heard them say and I'm like oh no I understand why mom did this or why mom would say this all of a sudden it makes sense and um, I guess it's part of the way life is supposed to be because we can't live in the future we only have now mm-hmm. and at points the memories only make sense after you know another chapter is here or has passed and it's powerful thanks for sharing that mm-hmm. and so yes you've already uh, talked about your family's arrival story but I, I wonder if you can give us a window into what it was like for you adjusting as a daughter of immigrant parents mm-hmm. and particularly uh, of parents from India. Uh, I know it's, it's culturally different for you guys, you, you, but you guys are very, it, in tradition, it's very important to you, to your culture from what I know. But what was it like for you adjusting living in an American space, mm-hmm. but then you have immigrant parents at home and you're trying to balance both of that and just being an American child, but yet, you know, they're wanting you to hold on to that Indian uh, cultural tradition? It's a great question. And I think context on this is important, too, because when we, you know, it's, it's important to note that I was doing a lot as a kid in the late 60s, early 70s, and there weren't as many of us then. Um, there, uh, you know, we found community, my parents found community with others who had recently immigrated, and that became our family. And uh, because there weren't as many people then, and the ethic that my father had, 
you know, we had to integrate quickly. It was a part of the way he wanted our household to be. So, you know, figure out how best to graft on. Um, you know, he always said when in Rome, we need to be the ones adjusting. We can't expect everyone else to adjust to us. And that um, set the stage so much so that he wanted to make sure that I only spoke English at home. He was, uh, it was at a time, and we certainly know the data tells us differently today, but at that time, they felt that I wouldn't be able to you know, excel at school if I didn't only know English. And it took me a while to be able to learn Gujarati because of how important it was that English be our primary language. And so you're asking, you know, how, how was it for me to, to integrate? And we have to start with my name. Um, I don't even say my name correctly. Uh, the way to say our, my name is Bodhavi Bhatt, but I say it's Bodhavi Bhatt. Uh, it, I, and even that is difficult at times. You know, my, you know, the anglicized way of speaking um, gets in the way sometimes for us to even fully own, uh, you know, the roots of who we are. And so, for me to integrate here as an American kid, um, it wasn't obvious that I was an American kid. And what was obvious is that I was different. And I grew up in the Midwest, in um, Chicago, Central Illinois, and then here in the Twin Cities. And I was often the only person of color in my classroom. And so beyond that, I was absolutely the only person with an unusual name. And so I was uh, going through roll call at school. By the, the time they came to my name, you would hear and feel, more than anything, you would feel the long pause. And you knew that someone was struggling. And I would quickly jump in and say, that must be me, and say my name. What was also interesting, and it's important in our culture, is uh, our names are, you know, the first name is uh, given to us based on what the, the horoscope is from the time and the date that you were born. So when I was born, uh, my parents, the only way they could get that sound, the first sound of my name was through telegrams to go back to India and then hear back from, from you know, one of the, the priests in India what the first sound of my name should be. And that just took too long. So my parents had to give me a name, of course, for my birth certificate. And the, the name they gave me is Dipti. And I'm not even saying that correctly, Dipti. And that was because they couldn't wait for the first sound to come. And uh, they wanted a simple name. And so they gave me that name. And that name means uh, light, candlelight. Our names also have meaning. Um, they're Sanskrit names with meaning. And so um, a couple weeks later, here comes the horoscope and the sound of my name. And the name is supposed to be Bo. And so then they changed my name to Corvi. And then uh, that became the official name, right? It was in all my documents. And of course, when I went to school. So here we are back at roll call. And not only is it a confusing name, I have to say, and I do it as a kid without realizing um, that I am in a complicated situation, I tell them, yep, that's my name, but call me Dipti, which makes no sense with a name that sounds like Porvi, and I'm coming up with Dipti. And I had to do that throughout. I finally settled in on my official name when I left for college. Uh, but that just the story of how our names are a part of our introduction and how that sets the tone of how we are accepted in a, in a structural setting like the classroom is essential. So how it felt as a kid was already that I had to help people understand who I am, help people understand 
um, correct them, right, and help them understand um, that I come from a different background and face the natural ridicule that can happen in a classroom with a name that can be easily teased. Um, you can tease about my name very easily. And uh, with going through a back and forth like that with, uh, with a teacher. So that, you know, often was my introduction and that would make it challenging at times. And you saw the generosity of kids too in those times, the, one, the friends that show up, right? And they're the ones that stay for a long time. Luckily, my parents uh, didn't limit me on the food side. I think you often hear about Indian, you know, kids and they can't eat, they're not going to eat meat or, you know, they'll bring their own food to school. Because of my dad's strong ethic of when in Rome, that wasn't what happened. I was, you know, signed up for school lunch like everybody else and I, I integrated quickly there. Where it became trickier was um, as I got older and it was time to date. And that's where it was tough because I was raised by parents who had an arranged marriage and their own fear of what the American system is with the, you know, what would, would mean to, to be dating and going out was a challenge to, to navigate. Um, you know, they were always so clear, we trust you, but we don't trust the system that we're in. And uh, eventually, you know, we all came around on it, but these normal, seemingly normal experiences of American life for kids, um, you know, I w was met with a little more discipline around it. Um, you know, going out to spend the night was not easy for me to do. Um, going out late to do things at uh, friends' houses isn't something that I did often, um, unless it was structured and sanctioned by school, if it was a school trip or something like that. Um, there were some of those limitations. Uh, but it's interesting now, as I look back on it, you know, I didn't feel fully limited. Um, I just knew that I didn't get to experience certain things. And then that changed once I left for college and learned how to, to not be at home, which was a harder thing, too, um, and learn how to participate in other people's families and, and participate more fully with my own, with my own decision-making on how I would keep our traditions alive. Um, at home, we would eat, uh, we would eat Gujarati Gudra food, um, you know, for dinner every, every evening. When people go to Indian restaurants today, um, they're eating foods from a different part of the country. They're not eating foods from, um, unless unless it's a boutique uh, restaurant, but they're often you know not um, gaining exposure to foods from across the country, and certainly not from Western India. Um, so that's what I would have at home. My mom eventually you know, allowed for us to eat pizza and other things on the weekend, as if it was a break, and that was and that was good. And I had a very strict household in terms of academics, um, how, you know, homework every time, you know, every day at home as soon as you come home. Um, you know, because of how they learned the multiplication tables and spelling, I needed to do flashcards every night. You needed to know your, your times tables all the way through 13 every night from, I think uh, I was drilled on that every night from like when I was seven until I was nine, just so that I would have that under control today. I couldn't tell you a thing, but back then I could do it. <laughs> Today, without my iPhone, I couldn't tell you anything. Um, then, it was such a big thing and, uh, and reading and the rest. When I was a teenager here in the, in the Twin Cities, my parents were, it was a much more structured environment here um, than central Illinois. And there was enough of a, of a, of a critical mass of Gujarati families here. And so my parents had a role to play in that community. And I learned, um, class, I learned classical dancing here and also folk dancing here. Um, Gujarat is also known for, um, you know, what they call is Garba, G-A-R-B-A, and Dandiaras, which is a stick dance. 
as well, much like how we have um, square dancing in, in America, right? Um, just uh, communal dancing that's rich in tradition and often, you know, done in, in farm country and then eventually becomes a part of the experience. It's very similar. Garba is a big communal dance um, that's done and women and men dress up and they and dance in concentric circles and is usually done in the fall uh, around harvest time. There's a specific religious festival, but this Gujarat is known for it. And so I got deeply involved in that. I still love doing that if, I, if, I, if I'm in shape and I can do it, but it's a great time to come to community. And I would bring my friends from, from school to come and experience it with me. So much so that when I graduated from high school, my, my graduation party was one big uh, Garba dance that everybody came to. And it was an integrated experience with uh, our Indian community together with my high school friends. Um, and so I learned to uh, celebrate our culture much more as I came into my teenage years than when I was much younger. I had a tough time when I was young because I, I have to say, it comes back to our name. And now, you know, it's a, uh, it's Asian American and Pacific Islander Heritage Month in May as well. And so you're hearing a lot more about this, this issue about know our names, right? And they have meaning and they might be challenging to pronounce, but it's important to learn and to ask. Um, and we're all vulnerable in it, but it's helpful to ask. And then now I'm getting a little more um, strident and learning my name for myself even, right? And, and pronouncing it correctly uh, whenever I can. Wow. I also um, came here after high school and had to learn the time, my times table from 1 to 12. <laughs> and we had to recite it daily in school. Oh, in school? And, uh, in school, we would all stand in front of the teacher and everybody would have to know it by heart, memorized. And, and it's funny, I would have to stop and think about it now, but I used to know it so well. But, you know, after being here for a number of years and not using it daily or thinking about <laughs> it, it's, it's funny that part, I hope it's still there somewhere in my memory. <laughs> you know, my what? dad would make me, in, and I do it still, and my friends know it, when, when it's time to round up, well, he told me when it's time to, to leave a tip, right, when you're having, you know, having a meal at a restaurant, you're wrapping up the, the bill, and it's time to leave the tip, he would, he would push me, because I saw him do it for himself. He said, you have to round it up to uh, an even number, a zero, zero, um, a full dollar, and make sure it's a significant amount, um, but you have to do the math yourself. There's no writing it down. There's no uh, figuring it out on a calculator. You have to do it yourself because it'll keep your mind sharp. And I will tell you, <laughs> I keep trying to do it still. It's harder and harder as the years go by, but that all comes from those times tables, right? And figuring everything out when we were younger. And I bet, you know, now as I hear your story about having to do it in school, that's probably what was going on for my parents as well. It was something that they would have to recite in school. And as soon as they realized that wasn't the way school was unfolding for me, um, I had to do it for them at home for the same reason. Right. It really does help. I, I appreciate that type of rigor. When you're a young person, as you get older, you appreciate it. When you're growing up, it's kind of like, why do we have to do so much work? But I can appreciate it as an older person now today <laughs> and being exposed to other systems of how children are being taught these days. So I appreciate it. <laughs> so at the time, then you go off to college. What was your American dream? for, you know, being the first to be born on this side, wanting to keep your, you know, your parents happy or, or family happy. What was it like for you? Did you have a dream? And what were some challenges that you may have faced in getting to that? 
It's a great question. You know, today I have a dream, right? Or I, I have, I can articulate things more crisply than what I was thinking then. I think I know then. Um, what was important to me was to make sure that I could set up my life in the way that I wanted it and that I was in an environment that would allow for that, right? I, I never took that for granted. But I know, you know, it was a very singular experience of wanting to make sure that I could succeed and, um, and make my parents proud. I think that never left me. It still is there, right? Even, even though they're not, you know, physically with me today is that, that long run feeling of do whatever you do, make them proud. Um, don't make them feel that they made the wrong choices for you. Um, that I felt deeply. And so, you know, again, I was at it, you know, growing up at a time when higher education and what that meant for, especially for me as a, as a girl, and, and I have to pause and say, because I was an only child for a variety of medical reasons, my mother couldn't have any other children after she had me, you know, for me to be an only child and to be an only girl child, it put, I, I believe I had more opportunities and more expectations as a result, because my dad in particular felt that she will be on her own one day and she needs to take care of herself, right? And, and a lot of that came from that original immigration story for both of them, but especially for my dad, who was the first one here, you have to be ready to be on your own and to take care of yourself. And so that allowed, uh, I believe for me, at least a, a few more degrees of freedom to take chances to take a job here or to move away from home when others were expecting their girls to stay in the same town and go to university close by you know, the big push for in my family was to make sure I didn't stay home. Um, and, and I, I ultimately chose going to Chicago because it was close enough. And you know, our extended kind of auntie and uncles uh, family was in Chicago. And so I felt more secure. I felt more secure. My parents did not put that expectation on me. And so from that vantage point, it kind of set things up to say that my future is to be independent and to succeed as best I can so that I would make them proud. I decided um, early on that I wanted to be a doctor. I don't think they pushed that on me. Um, I wasn't thrilled about engineering uh, because my dad was an engineer. And so when he helped me with my homework, it, it always felt like it was helping, you know, his, his tips always came from that space. And I, I didn't find that to be enjoyable, but I decided I wanted to go to medical school and I thought I did at least. And um, my parents supported that. I, I did a lot of things um, to give me perspective on what it would like, be like. I volunteered at nursing homes for several summers in a row here in the Twin Cities. I did a lot that put me in direct contact with people in need, um, not as a resume filler, which is a term that we use today, right? But back then it was mainly to, one, to get out of the house, to be honest, back to being in a strict household. Um, to do something with friends also, but also to do something in direct service. Um, by the time I got into college and my second year of college, I uh, made a decision to work with Mother Teresa's organization in India. It was the first time I went to India by myself and, um, and thought that that would be something that would help me strengthen what I wanted to do, which was at the time be a pediatrician. Um, after doing that, and I, I volunteered at the at an orphanage for the destitute, it uh, it 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 was hard for me. My my heart was too too uh, fragile for that kind of work. It, I could tell that if, and I'm glad I had this experience. That by the individual through the individual experience, seeing people who are not um, who are sad, who are unhappy, who are sick, 
um, was hard on me. And I, I realized that I couldn't take that responsibility of the individual care. Um, and I shifted my professional outcome, uh, output from there. I decided that, uh, you know, I came back and said, I'm not sure that that medicine is going to work for me because you see people in pain most of the time. And uh, my parents were fine. You know, they, they were open to saying, all right, you're going to need to figure something out. And in that process of just um, starting to ask people what other options there are in healthcare uh, with other coaches and, and mentors, um, and especially at school, asking me, you know, what I liked and didn't like, I discovered public health. Um, at a time when nobody else was real, I mean, public health today is different. Look, at, we're in the middle of a, of a COVID response. Um, everyone has an opinion about public health today, but in the early 80s, it wasn't yet um, the, kind of, the kind of space that it is. And so, my, I mean, I really give my parents so much credit. They, um, they, they took on all the questions from the aunties and uncles that might challenge them about the decisions I was making because everybody was judging them as parents of a girl who's trying to do different things. And they shielded me from all of those questions. So I give them so much credit for that. Um, and then my dreams, so my dreams shifted fast from, from medicine to broader health. And uh, I thought I'd work for WHO one day, not knowing what WHO even was, uh, but thinking about a lot of that in, in college and pursued my public health degrees and started just kept going wherever there was a job, very similar to my dad's approach. Um, but because my first jobs were in the HIV response, um, and my background is in healthcare and public health degreed and uh, multiple degreed and um, started in the government, the U.S. government, because that's a steady job, uh, very similar to what my dad would, would have wanted. And uh, from that, discovered a lot of the issues around HIV through some of my early, my early work. And that shaped, shaped my experience. Um, not just professionally, but personally, and uh, pulled forward, I think, some of the same courage that both of my parents had of thinking about when you need to speak up, when do you need to act, how do you need to act, are the, the principles and values of who you work with and who you spend time with um, aligned with your own? Are you willing to speak up when they're not? A lot of that, I learned so much of that through, the, through my colleagues and friends in the HIV movement, and so much of that resonated with my parents, which was amazing. And so we became closer as uh, friends and colleagues and family uh, because of what I was learning and experiencing through what I was doing at work. And the dreams shifted where it wasn't about just having a successful job. It was about ensuring that I had, was able to have a voice and to help others who don't have a voice um, make sure that creating a space where their voice could be shared. And all of that started with the HIV response and, and has only been fed now as we're seeing so many more people of color, more people who are um, immigrants here, um, recognizing that if we don't have a voice, things don't change. And I would have never thought that that was not the dream of, of, a, of a 21 year old, um, but it became the dream of, uh, of who I am today. And I can tie it all the way back to, to each of my parents. They were never ones to stay quiet. Um, but I never paid attention to that when I was younger. It's only now as I, as I reflect on where they were and how far they came, um, where I've noticed that they needed to navigate differently, they needed to speak up differently, and um, I've learned some of that through them. I will say it is remarkably hard still, and I think anybody who, who's in you know, any large organization um, and is navigating how to stay 
uh, visible uh, with their ideas and have a voice. Um, you know, it, it's not something that is just passively created for you. You have to you have to have um, diplomacy, courage, and, uh, and 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 grit to be able to have the kind of influence that you feel that you're going to need to be able to get your dreams um, accomplished in this country. And I think that's true of every country, but I will speak for the experience here. You have to stay with it. Join us next time for part two of this episode. Tune in next week for another episode of The Immigrant Experience in America. As this is a new podcast, we welcome any and all support. If you have not done so already, subscribe on the Apple Podcast app, Google Podcast app, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you listen. You can also support us by completing a five-star rating and review and sharing our podcast with your friends, family, and circle of influence. <laughs>